Well, since social media took off a number of years ago, really, we've seen many things change in our culture. Some things good, some things bad. And one of the many phenomena in social media is, is this curating that's done of lives showing that which is most primarily positive, um, joyful things, uh, um, pleasing things. I mean, how many people look on the lives to show or share positive aspects of their lives when you look at Instagram or when you look at Facebook or when you look at TikTok or whatever you look at. People look at other people's lives on social media platforms and they find themselves not just a bit envious or jealous um, or there's that fear of missing out on things or whatever. You see their posts and you can only conclude that their life is is just so much better than yours. There was a um, opinion piece uh, a number of years ago, actually in 2017, it's just gotten worse since then, but let me just read this to you. It says um, from uh, this online magazine, what you see is aesthetically laid out images of bottomless mimosa brunches, frequent gifts from a cute boyfriend, selfies showcasing flawless skin, mirror pictures of chic outfits with appearances by designer handbags and dolls, and pictures taken in the middle of carefree laughter with friends, all coming together with a sort of down-to-earth girl next door with everything any girl could ever want vibe. However, despite the enviable contents of her Instagram, it was learned that it was all carefully curated. Everything was put together to maintain the public image that she was a happy-go-lucky, carefree girl. Anytime she was sad or upset, there was no indication of these emotions on her Instagram. Everything she posted was carefully selected to give the appearance that her life was, as cliche as it sounds, all sunshine and rainbows. We, we all want to feature the best parts of our life. And what we're proud of what's going well. There's nothing wrong with that. We want to share those things. We want to show photos of happy times. We want to show photos maybe that uh, reveal parts of our body or angles of our body that look better than other angles. Um, I'm not saying that we need to stop doing that or to just simply air every negative emotion that we feel, or struggles, and failures, probably a word for that as well. But there is a beauty and an encouragement in seeing what is real and vulnerable. And not only what's curated is beautiful and appealing, and this is one thing that's so refreshing in God's Word. Uh, this is something that we come to over and over again. When we come to the narratives of Scripture, we see no careful positive curating of the primary people being spoken of. I mean, plenty of the good and bad stories of people's lives aren't even recorded in Scripture, but of the things that are recorded, um, curated in a way by God to communicate to us, are both positive and negative. We see it in our text this morning. It allows us then, I think when we think about the stories, we can find ourselves in those stories better rather than comparing to an Instagram feed that is so positive that your life just stinks in comparison. We look at these stories and where there is curating done by God himself, it is so that we see the reality of the situation before us. And what we see is 
real people with real baggage who have a merciful God leading them and loving them, people with real baggage, real issues, just like you and just like me. And a merciful God leading and loving them just like he leads and loves you and me as well. Amid all the narratives of Genesis, we're meant to see with clarity the very genuine humanity of mankind, and we certainly do, and we also see and trust the mercy of God, and to learn to imitate uh, the good that we see in these stories and avoid the sinful actions of those we read of. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, uh, the things happened to God's people as an example, and they were written down for our instruction to us whom the end of the ages has come. It's appropriate for us, of course, to draw life lessons from the stories of Genesis, but there are more profound and more substantial purposes for the emphasis that we come to. We have not spent a lot of time uh, at all focusing on the specific life lessons or moralisms from that we can get from these stories. There's certainly plenty of them that we can learn from, but there are these more profound, more substantial, more foundational things that, that the sins of the patriarchs and the dysfunction of their families and the Genesis narrative speak to us about as we see what God is doing and how faithful he is amid that. A, a definite point is being made throughout God's word, but throughout these stories in Genesis, a point that has very much to do not only with lives individually, but the overarching meta-narrative of Scripture. Um, the story of our redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, what's the point that we keep coming back to repeatedly? And we will continue to come back to it repeatedly through these next number of weeks that we finish up Genesis. Two things. First, when the Genesis narrative emphasizes time and time again... Uh, the, the sin of the patriarchs of Israel, there's a purpose in it. It's a demonstration of the fact that our hope for salvation is not in us. It's not in Jacob. It's not in Isaac. It's not in Abraham. It's not in the people of God, but it's in the absolutely free, unmerited favor and grace of God. These stories uh, that recount the sins of the patriarchs are intended to emphasize to Israel, who is sitting on the edge of the promised land, again, you remember that context, and, and fearing what was in front of them, to be able to see that, that actually who they are as a people or is 100% has to do with God. Him calling them as the physical nation and as a spiritual community, that their existence and identity are solely due to the grace of God and not because of any inherent worthiness that's in them as a people. We, we see that, right? We see that even in our text today. There's just nothing really that's inherently wonderful about the story. And the New Testament shares the same truth, of course. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're very familiar with it. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. There's nothing new. There's nothing new about that. Paul understood the Old Testament scriptures, and he was keenly aware that God's grace alone saved even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they did not gain salvation through their own righteous efforts. You see that pretty clearly. It was the gift from the merciful God, and that is going to be driven home in scripture time and time and time again that we must not grow dull of hearing. Hebrews warns us of what happens when we grow dull of hearing in that we 
we don't focus on this gospel reality that our hope is in God alone, Christ alone. And we end up drifting when we do that. We trust in ourselves somehow. You know, if you genuinely understand the seriousness of Adam's sin, our father's sin, as described in Genesis 3, and the catastrophic con consequences that it had on all of us, um, you're not going to be surprised that it didn't have to do with you that you were saved. The fact that you can be forgiven and given his righteousness, made righteous in him, sanctified, justified, and adopted, all of those things, you recognize, man, you can't make that happen yourself. You had nothing to do with it. It was God's grace and his grace alone. The fundamental truth in these narratives repeatedly reveals God's unmerited favor and grace towards the people that he has set apart for himself to dwell with forever. This is meant to strengthen us and give us hope, motivating us, encouraging us, uh, empowering us. The Spirit of God is teaching us this uh, over and over again so that we can have assurance, not in ourselves, but assurance in the one who alone can fulfill his promises. He's not the one who spills water on a friend. He is the one who will stay true to his promises. Unquestionably so. So may we have ears to hear this morning and hearts to respond in love, thanksgiving, and trust. Praise the Lord, the Almighty. He has done marvelous things. These narratives also tell us another truth that's meant to strengthen us and give us hope, specifically that the sinful nature of mankind, the sinful nature that is at work in us, even right now, this morning, will not obstruct the accomplishment of his purposes. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon that was entitled um, something along the lines of, Our sin does not thwart the plans and purposes of God. And that is a true reality through all the scripture and through these stories particularly. Sometimes we can look at the world and we wonder, well, we know that God has a plan, but we wonder how it's going to work out. And we look at the evil that's going on in the world, and, and we just are like, how, how it seems as though God's plan is being squashed. And perhaps when you look in the mirror, you know, you consider your own life, your own struggles, and you just wonder if God can fulfill his promises in you with all the sin that's there, the lack of love for God, the difficulties. It can seem at times that God's plan to redeem a people from himself to dwell with forever is failing. You look around, you wonder, is God really at work? It only seems as though God at times is at work in the silence. The psalmist, of course, gets to that over and over again. Why are you so silent? Why are you so far off? Why will you not answer my prayers? This, this text, another text in Genesis, addressed some of that only seems as though God is not working. Certainly, we'll get to the story of Joseph. We're all familiar, most of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. And certainly, it would seem during those years that God was not at work in some very brutal situations. But we know the end of the story. Even though Joseph didn't at the time, we do, looking back, God was 
at work. How does God manage to accomplish his purposes in a world that's plagued by evil? The scriptures don't give us all the details of how he does it and, and how he continues to do it, but it tells us repeatedly not only that he can do it, but that he is doing it, that he will do it. He will complete his plans. He will complete his purposes. He will do it. The theme of God accomplishing his purposes, despite the sinfulness of his creatures, is a recurring theme in the pages of Scripture. And one of those aspects of the meta-narrative of Scripture that God is at work here. So we read this story inside of that context, rather than just moralizing the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and the, on, the, all the other ones that are mentioned. God's purposes are always accomplished. His promises, 100% fulfilled. Even though angels and men may rebel against God and act very deceptively, God's plans still come to fruition because he is sovereign, because he is God, says in Isaiah 46, and there is no other. He is God and there is none like him, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He will accomplish all his purpose. He will. There's not, a, there's not an if to it. Even though right now in your life and in the life of Jacob maybe or in whatever, there is this sense of silence, sense of God's awareness. God is not seemingly present or it feels like he's silent or not responsive. He will stay true to his promises. Several important lessons, of course, we can learn from the Genesis narrative. Still, we must understand the primary purpose of these stories to emphasize that the patriarchs and God's people are only his people because of God's grace. And secondly, that God will always fulfill his plans. He will always be true to his promises. Now, that was a long introduction, but let's look at our text here. We'll, we'll want to look at specifically three things this morning. They're points of instruction, like what Paul was saying, they're for our instructions. So, so what, what is it, you know, kind of, you see those two overarching or undergirding realities, truths that, that everything must fit into. Um, what are three things that we can be instructed by this morning? Well, here's one. These are made by um, uh, saying, saying a statement for something for you to do. Trust God to accomplish what he alone can with your messy life. That's not just a point, that's an action step. Trust God to accomplish what he alone can with your messy life. It's clear that the story is, you know, it's telling us about uh, Jacob's search for a wife. And perhaps surprisingly, he ends up with four of them. Um, two primary wives and two of their servants. We haven't spent any time at all talking about polygamy. Uh, but polygamy, that, that having multiple wives, is uh, against God's original plan for marriage. This is clear. Genesis 2.24, God intends for a man to leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. And the two, not four or five or however many, two shall become one flesh. Nevertheless, the story, and this is one of the amazing things to me about the Bible, the story is still there. In Jacob, Israel. The story is accurate, and the story is honest, and it doesn't hide Jacob's dysfunction. The fact that it's in Scripture, we must not 
have this connection whatsoever, that because it's in Scripture, somehow it's proved. It's, it's just telling the story, telling what happened. Um, it's not any sort of approval that's happening here. The story we're considering today is similar to the story of Genesis 24 with, with uh, Isaac and his path to finding a wife. See all sorts of different connections between Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, and Laban is kind of in the middle of both stories. He's involved in both. So these two stories of the patriarchs are Abraham's son and grandson are, are to be connected, are to be thought about and considering, okay, that's, that's how, how is this, how, how is this connected? What are some aspects? We see different aspects of the story that are similar. Um, but what we see that is consistent in this as well is that Laban is one who is trying to take advantage of both situations, whether it's his sister um, or his daughter and their suitors. The stories about the wives of Isaac and Jacob are crucial to the narratives of Genesis because they answer the question of how Isaac and Jacob will become the fathers of the great multitude, which is the promise, the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. How is that going to carry out if Isaac doesn't have a wife or Jacob doesn't have a wife? And so this part of the, this, these stories are not just like some story. They're, they're part of how God is making this plan happen. Through these Women, the promises of God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be fulfilled. Many offspring would come from them, and a nation would be born. Through the process of childbearing, we understand that we celebrated a month and a half ago, celebrated the birth of Christ. Through childbearing, there would be the blessing of the nations through Christ himself. This, this passage is more than just a list of names. Um, it's not just a basic genealogy. A simple genealogy would suffice uh, if the goal were to just simply speak about the facts of Israel's history, and we've seen some of those, and we'll see some of those in the future as well, where, where we read a bunch of names, and sometimes we spend time in those names, we spend time thinking about those, but that's not what this is about specifically in our passage. This passage tells a story that some might find scandalous. It's filled with deceit, bitterness, and jealousy. In fact, if you were to sit with your young children and come across this story or some other stories that are coming in our text in Genesis, you're probably going to think to yourself, oh, I might just skip that story. Um, it's surprising to think that this behavior comes from the patriarchs of our faith and the matriarchs. The story is even more shocking when you consider that Moses wrote it down and gave it to the Israelites uh, after their deliverance from Egypt. Uh, as they're sitting there on the threshold of the promised land and saying, well, this is your non-curated history. It's crucial for us to understand that one of the primary objectives of the story is to communicate again to the people of Israel then and to God's people today regarding the reality and unmitigated and sure hope of the unmerited free grace of God alone shown towards us and to them. Not any inherent good in us. So, so hear it again this morning. Not in any inherent good in us. It's, it's, it's not that we are the worst people of all time. It's not that we are, are like so nasty. Is that before holy God, we can do nothing. We cannot approach him at all. There is nothing good as it compares to holy God. There's nothing good in us. As good as we may be, relationally, sideways. 
There's always something. Like I said two weeks ago, there's things that we're doing or things that we're not doing. Always seems like that. It's not in any inherent goodness. There's not just a little bit of grace in us that we just need God's help to kind of get us over the hurdle. Moses wanted to drive this point home, and so this is why this is happening. This piece of the story is happening over and over and over again to drive it home that their hope is in God alone for their salvation. Friends, there is, as nice as you are, outside of Christ Jesus, you are dead in your sins. Absolutely broken. You needed someone to step in, someone to act, because you could not act as a dead person. It's crucial for us to understand that so that we can be absolutely sure that our salvation is based not on me, not on my ability to do anything well, but on God's grace, on his mercy, on his righteousness alone. You know, the truth of the matter is that we've all fallen into sin. We know that verse, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only way to have a, a true relationship with God, the only way to have a true relationship with God is by his free grace alone. God sent his son be the one to save us from our sins. God has to be the one to initiate and act to lift us out of our sinful state and into a right relationship with him. God is the one who calls. God is the one who saves. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who adopts. God is the one who will glorify us as well in that day when we see him face to face. We must pursue a relationship with God by faith, trusting in him, resting in him, believing on him, not just for our entrance into Christianity, but always, every day, moment by moment, going back to the truths of the gospel, that my hope is in Christ, not in me, so that when you look yourself in the mirror in the morning or at night or in the afternoon or wherever, and you consider your lack, you consider your non-curated life that's not all happy and pleasing, there's all these difficulties, all these doubts, all these sorrows, and you can say, I am a child of the king. We, when we stand before God on that final day, we will, we will not look to what we did. We will not look to what we didn't do. But we will look to the one whom we believed upon by faith. I was thinking of the verse this morning on this 2 Timothy 1 says, I know, I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know whom I believed. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I don't do what I should do sometimes, often. There is no hope in my obedience. There's no hope in my ability to do anything well. When I get before the throne, uh, my one thing is Jesus Christ. And so if that's going to be my plea then, it's going to be my plea today. There was a 
song that we used to sing um, in Sovereign Grace, just written a number of years ago, and it goes like this. I come into your presence with nothing in my hands. I only bring thanksgiving for Jesus, God, and man. I cast myself on mercy. I cast myself on love. I trust your gracious promise to wash me with your blood. I will not fear your judgment. For me, no wrath I dread. For it was spent on Jesus, poured out upon his head. When Satan's accusations make my poor heart afraid, I hear my king declaring, Father, that debt is paid. Jesus, my only hope, my only plea, my righteousness, my great high priest, who intercedes for me before the throne, Jesus, I trust in you alone. Although this story tells us about Jacob's marriage to these four women and the offspring that came from them, it also highlights the unworthiness of God's or of our ancestors, Israel's ancestors, and it showcases the absolute wonder of God's grace. The point, trust God to accomplish what he alone can with your messy life. First thing to learn, he bids you to do so. He is entirely trustworthy. Second point of instruction, another action. Trust God to use difficult circumstances to grow you in godliness. The story that we continue to read is, is a remarkable one. Jacob fell in love with Rachel at first sight. He saw her and he's like, man, she's, she's the one. He agreed to work for Laban for seven years, to have her hand in marriage, and his love and affection for her was so strong that it, he, says, he says this, it seemed to him in a few days because of the love he had for her. Seven years. You think about the last seven years in your life. How many things have happened? And it seems kind of fast sometimes, the older you get, right? But seven years, seven years. It's a long time. And to him, because he loved her so much, even though as we'll see, um, Laban's scoundrel, the seven years of being with a scoundrel, working for a scoundrel, seemed like that too. And on the night of their marriage, Laban gave Jacob Leah instead of Rachel, probably due to darkness and veil and why he didn't make any sort of connection there. It doesn't stay, it just he was, he was surprised in the morning that he had slept with Leah, he was given Leah as his wife. And when Jacob confronts Laban about this deceitful act, he just, Laban just blames it on what, you know, tradition, their cultural tradition. And so he says, well, hey, you know what? What I want you to do is I want you to serve me for another seven years, and then you can, you can have Rachel as well. So it's quite ironic, really, when you think about Jacob receiving a taste of his own medicine. Because as we were talking about just a few weeks ago, Jacob was rather deceptive himself, wasn't he? He took advantage of his father's eyesight to carry out the plan that he had to steal the blessing from, uh, from Esau. But Laban, who was his mother's brother, used the darkness of night to deceive Jacob and returned by swapping uh, his second-born daughter for the first. And for 14 years, then, Jacob worked for Laban, the deceiver. And it's hard to imagine the impact that uh, the challenging experience had on Jacob, not to mention the difficulty on both Leah and Rachel. I mean, we hear about the difficulty for, for Jacob, but 
But certainly, Leah and Rachel weren't happy about this thing either. For 14 years, Jacob had worked for his uncle, who was kind of just like him. Laban was greedy for gain, willing to deceive, took advantage of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of others. 14 years. You ever notice that God sometimes, often, uses both difficult people in difficult circumstances to grow us in godliness? Kind of stinks. Perhaps this is a bit harder to notice, uh, but each one of us can be the difficult person in someone else's life. It's not always just a one-way street, right? The proverb says, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And when we think of that proverbs, proverbs, we usually think of like accountability friendships or or like we're like good relationships where people are rubbing each other and encouraging each other and challenging each other and put their arm around each other and everything. But like, let's be real. It's not always encouraging. It's not always someone who loves us. It's not someone who is necessarily friendly towards us. And sometimes those circumstances that we come to are certainly not friendly. Relational difficulties may come as a test inside the church and outside the church. A test that reveals the level of your hope and trust in God and understanding of the very gospel of grace you profess to believe and rejoice in. Over the last few decades, I've found that some of the greatest opportunities for growth in Christ again come through um, some who challenge us. And uh, think of how a knife is sharpened. Rubbing against one another. It's coming into contact with something abrasive. Think about a sword formed by a blacksmith when it's subjected to fire and it's beaten to death. Hammered and hammered and hammered and hammered until, until it's ready to go. It, it doesn't give the difficult and abrasive person the right to continue their behavior thinking that the Lord is using them to sanctify others and that that's some sort of spiritual gift. But it should help us think differently about difficult relationships in our lives. And we all have them. I think God used Laban a deceitful person to teach Jacob the importance of honesty and integrity. It's not a primary story, but it is, it is something to instruct us, to trust in God. Fourteen years of being with this deceptive father-in-law. Similarly, the difficult people in our lives can have a specific purpose that we should not discount. And, and and when I speak about people, I'm also speaking about, in, in an appropriate, grammatical way, situations, circumstances, difficulties, which I know all of us, we might have very good relationships, but our circumstances may be super difficult. Or you might have circumstances that are excellent, and you're just ticked off with a couple of people. And you know a couple of people are ticked off with you in the church. Difficult situations and difficult people may help us learn patience and, and to love unconditionally. Can also teach us, they can also teach us how to be humbled and, and to confront um, 
wrongdoing patiently and kindly, to, to love unconditionally, to, to care for somebody even though you're being sinned against. It's possible that God's using them to help us see the severity of our own sins. Often we're blind to our own sins, so somebody might be a source of irritation or, or, or difficulty that, that God is utilizing in your life to cause you to open your eyes and see the garbage that's inside of you. And our need for forgiveness, our need for grace, as we're exhorted to show them forgiveness and grace. As hard as it may be, let's not avoid people who are irritating and challenging to be around. And to remember that, to some, that might be us. Boundaries may sometimes be necessary, certainly. We should also learn to be grateful to God for those who challenge us. We can ask the Lord to use them to help us grow and be strengthened by the Spirit and our faith and in the way we live, keeping in step with the Spirit. Revealing the increasing fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You can trust God to use a myriad of difficult relationships and circumstances to grow you in godliness. And so the question is, will you yield to him and walk in gospel humility before God and before other people and in difficult circumstances? Will, will you yield to him and trust him? He is entirely trustworthy and he is working. He's working. He's not silent. He might be somewhat silent, but he's not silent in his working. He is doing something in you through the difficulties. He has not departed from you. He's with you. As Pastor Kale spoke on last week, he's with you. He's with you. Keeping you. Guarding you. Even though it seems as though he hasn't said a word for months. final point of instruction from the narrative this morning that I'm going to get to anyway is this, another action step. Trust that God is able to make all grace abound amid your brokenness. Trust that God is able to make all grace abound amid your brokenness. It's essential to recognize that the nation of Israel was born out of an entirely messy situation. And we see this again repeatedly over much of the remainder of our time in Genesis. So we won't spend much time on this specific point this morning. But Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were promised that a great multitude and nation would come from them. Here we're introduced to the heads of the tribes of Israel for the very first time. And their names sound familiar to you, right? They gave birth to sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and one daughter named Dinah. Rachel gave birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Bilhah gave birth to two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Zilpah gave birth to two sons, Gad and Asher. And these sons would later become the 12 tribes of Israel, with two being of great importance. One born to Rachel in particular, and another one. One is Joseph, and one is Judah. Go forward into the story, into the rest of Genesis, and throw scripture, and to, to uh, Jesus himself, we would see these, these two, Joseph and Judah, coming up again, and again, and again. But Joseph, who was Jacob's youngest son at the time, he would bring physical salvation to Israel through Egypt. God would bless him. God would bring salvation to Israel from Egypt, deliverance from Egypt through the leadership of Joseph, through Joseph going through significantly dark waters, super, super strong difficulties, God orchestrating all of it, 
so that his people would be saved. And the power of deliverance and salvation did not stem from Joseph, did not stem from his brothers, did not stem from Isaac or Jacob or Abraham or anybody else, but from God himself, his unmerited grace and mercy. And then a couple of thousand years later, we come to the most wonderful narratives in the Gospels regarding the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself through the tribe of Judah. So we've got Joseph, we've got Judah. But Jesus is often referred to as the line of the tribe of Judah. He's known as the sacrificial lamb who died to take away the sins of the world, even ours. This morning, to deliver God's people, to present them blameless with great joy before God on that final day. And here's another example of how powerful our God is, how great he is. He can make everything work together for good. And in fact, he intends to. And those who intend to, like I intended not to pour water on Dan's head. He intends to do it by way of like surety, absolute certainty. He can and does bring light from darkness. He does bring order from chaos, life from death and good from evil, beauty from ashes. Even the sinful actions and brokenness of those he created in his image, cannot stop him from achieving his plans, his purposes, and his promises. My dear friends, if you're truly in Christ, nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate you from his love. We love that passage, don't we, in Romans 8, 38, 39? Not, not things, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor powers, nor anything else, no creation. He knows your non-curated life. He knows everything about you, thinks Psalm 139. You cannot hide from his presence. His eyes are all-seeing, and he knows everything about you. He knows it's not just all rainbows. Nothing's hidden from him. He knows your doubts. He knows your struggles. He knows your anger. He knows your bitterness. He knows your impatience and moodiness. He knows your propensity To want to be popular, want people to like you, and desire to feel important. He knows your sorrow, your sadness, your loneliness, your emptiness, your spiritual dryness. And in it all, in all of that, this morning, right in this moment, I believe that he is specifically compelling you by his spirit to trust him and to rest in him and find your hope in him as the only one in whom is life eternal. Whether you have to wait for a moment or for 14 years or, or a lifetime. There was a um, note that uh, Nick Edwards uh, sent gave me this past week. Um, just want to read it. Guy in our church is pursuing membership. And he said, I felt like I saw a picture of a camcorder. And it was for a specific person at the time, but I think it's a specific good picture for all of us. I felt like I saw a picture of a camcorder um, for someone who was going through a difficult time. And I felt like the Lord was 
showing me this camcorder, recording a video of his life right now, and that one day he's going to be able to watch that back and get joy from it, just as people do in looking back at old camcorder videos. And we got to look back and look at this story and say, oh, 14 years, it's not a, big, not a big deal. I've been here 10 years. It's like there's a lot of things that have happened. You think about 14 years, some of you are only 14 years old. Been married for 14 years, your child is 14 years old, or ish, whatever, something like that. You look back at 14 years and you think that's a lot. There will be a day that comes, and we'll see this in just a moment, a little bit more. Be a day when we come and we look back and we recognize the Lord's hand in so many things. The older you get, the more you see that, don't you? In Christ, in particular. So the question is, will you trust that God's able to make all grace abound to you amid your brokenness and amid your emptiness and amid your difficulty? And certainly you want it removed. Certainly you want to be delivered from your situation. Certainly you want healing. Certainly you want all those things. And we continue to pray and pray and pray and pray. But God is able to make all grace abound to you in the middle of your suffering. Do you believe that? Do you trust that he is for you and not against you? Far from just stories in scripture that are interesting to read about, uh, what we have come to is meant to affect our lives profoundly. The first thing, we're meant to humble ourselves and be increasingly confident in the knowledge that our salvation in Christ is based on his grace alone and not anything deserving in us. We should be humbled by the fact that we've been chosen by holy God, called by Christ, uh, infilled with the Spirit, and not boastful in ourselves at all. We should be growing in confidence, Holy Spirit confidence, that if our right standing before God was initiated by His grace, then He will keep us by His grace. He will complete the work that He began by His grace and the power of the Spirit, and not simply by our own efforts to try to make things happen. Certainly, we work hard. Certainly, we are called to look to Christ, and we are called to obey His Word and trust Him. All active things we do, but we do so with the recognition that we do those things on account of His sovereign and ongoing work in us. That he is presently working in us, and so we walk according to the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is moving. We keep in step with Him. We walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. And we do that by remembering the Gospel. And, and not just remembering it intellectually, but, but finding a joy in it. That even though there is difficulty, even though and there's so many difficulties that we go through at different times. Whether it's sin in our, in our own hearts, or, or suffering, or disease, or whatever. So much difficulty. God is calling us to trust Him. It, so that, that's, that's the question this morning. Do you trust Him? If you don't trust Him, like, I want to say welcome to the family. It is difficult to trust Him. But he is absolutely trustworthy. One of the joys we have as a church is to come alongside of one another 
and to encourage one another as that final day approaches. To not just simply give answers to things. Why is this happening to me? I, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I want to relieve your suffering. Oh, I want, I want God to relieve your suffering right now. But when he doesn't, he is still good. And he is still worthy of our trust. So may we grow to encourage one another that way. But we've humbling ourselves and growing in confidence in the knowledge that our salvation in Christ is in him alone. His presence with us is by grace alone. Second, we should be mindful when we consider the world around us that if a person has not believed in Christ, that they're lost in their sins. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They, they don't have any hope. They, they are without hope in this world. They're, they're, they're lost. They remain under the just wrath of God. And they don't have, again, the Spirit of God residing in them. Their actions should not be a surprise to us. To somehow make us incredulous. How dare they make that decision? How dare they do such a... The, the, the lost. May we not grow in resentfulness or incredulity. But may we be a people who instead pray for the people who don't yet know Christ. Whether that's something in our family or or a neighbor or a member of government. May we be a people who pray and care for them as we can with complete patience, gentleness, godliness, and clarity in our words and actions. Third, may we be patient with one another in our homes and in the church. The, re the reality is that we're going to take each other off some, sometimes, some, somehow, in some ways. There's no, there's, there's no reason for Paul to say, bear with one another, unless we have to bear with one another, you know? We're going to be irritated with each other. We're, we're a family. We're, there's dysfunction in me, in me and in you. And so we, 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 we bump heads. We... we, we it's like this, we're thankful for the unity that we have and how beautiful is unity, right? But the temptations that we have to, to, to wrestle against one another and to lose sight of, of the good news of Jesus Christ amid our unkindness towards one another is, is really is there all the time. So rather than returning in kind what you have felt you have unkindly received from a brother or sister in Christ, may we be patient and forbearing with each other. May, may we forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. May we grasp the gospel of grace so keenly, so keenly that it would be somewhat impossible to hold a grudge against someone else. God, God did not hold a grudge against us. He poured his wrath out on the Son for us so that, so that we would be welcomed into his family. And now that we're part of his family, and so is your brother, and so is your sister, they've been forgiven by God so much more than what they've done against you. Certainly when the story of the unforgiving servant, but the one who understands how much they've been forgiven, um, although it's difficult. How, how much should forgiveness be doled out in our homes and in our church? A lot. Frequently. Regularly. And when holding a grudge, we repent. Confess our sins, repent, believe the gospel, 
even though we have been forgiven. So Lord, give me the grace to be able to forgive that person because you've forgiven me three million times more than that. May we see one another as gifts of God to help us grow and mature in Christ along the road to eternity. That we're on together, we are family, we're in this together forever. What a joy it is. I, I, I love coming coming here. Usually when I'm coming here, Joy prays, prays for me uh, when we're coming down to Rose Mount. And um, because my heart is not always in, in, a, in a, a great spot. Usually I'm, you know, uptight about something or whatever. I'm just, or my mind is distracted. And she prays for me. And when I get here and I begin to see you, and my love for you is kindled afresh, May we grow in love for one another and patience with each other and care for one another. Finally, may each of us take comfort in the knowledge that God can accomplish his purposes despite the sinful rebellion of his creation, including you and I. When the evil around us seems overwhelming and when darkness appears to be winning the day, we can be sure that God will triumph. He is the all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, and faithful God. His counsel will stand and he will accomplish all his purposes. With that truth being repeated to us over and over and over again, and we'll continue to hear it over and over and over again, is it not appropriate and good for us to simply lay our hands out before him in humility, grow in our faith in God, and rely on his grace and his purposes in all things in our lives? In the life of this church, and in the lives of individuals that we love, in the life, in the, in the life of the individuals that, that we're, we're tempted to be irritated with, may we see God's work in all of it, because he certainly is at work in all of it. We can trust our good and faithful God to keep us and to direct us amid any circumstances until the day we see him face to face. So, friends, Psalm 31, 24, be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord, our King, is worthy of our trust. Amen.